Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 170 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Natalie Kelly about the challenges facing small firms and why firms aren't doing anything about them. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Spotlight Branding, and New Law Business Model. We appreciate their support, and we will tell you more about them later in the show. So I want to do a little shout out to uh, podcast listener Susan Williams, who left the following testimonial. I love this podcast. It has inspired me and helped me so much in my practice. Thank you. And so I wanted to say thank you to Susan Williams. We really appreciate testimonials, whether you're shooting them to us by email or leaving them as a review in iTunes. Um, We're really grateful for input from listeners. Thanks, Susan. So I don't want to step on the toes of the conversation I'm about to have with Natalie too much, but I had an insight between my conversation with Natalie and now that I think is maybe worth talking about. We're going to talk about some of the challenges firms face, and this is based on a study where firms said, hey, we recognize some challenges, and B, we aren't doing anything about it. And I think part of the reason firms aren't addressing that, and this is the insight I had, is that they can't. And if you think about the way that many small firms are constructed, It's um, a bunch of siloed small practices that just happen to share office space and expenses and overhead. But I think in many cases, not probably not in every case, but in many cases, firms don't have the sort of fundamental things in place to be able to take action on it. They aren't tracking and they may not even agree on what are the key measurements of success. They don't have clear roles and responsibilities laid out. They don't have a strategy, neither a competitive strategy or a marketing strategy. They may not have a decision-making framework or, you know, just some of those basic things that businesses need in order to make changes to their business. And the reason I had this insight is that I was thinking through how to talk about the scorecard, the small firm scorecard, which we've told you guys about. And so you know about it. But I think if you are finding yourself, if you if this podcast resonates with you, you're like, yeah, I know I should be doing stuff about technology or marketing or whatever it is or about collections. If that resonates with you and you aren't making progress on it, if you aren't sure why you aren't able to get going with that, go take the scorecard. It's at lawyerist.com slash scorecard. It's free and it will identify for you the steps that you need to take in order to make progress. So that's my pitch for the scorecard. And I don't want to say too much more because Natalie and I are going to have a great conversation about it. Uh, But I don't think we cover that exactly. And I think it might be helpful to you. Yeah, I think there's an interesting dynamic where I think a lot of the reason that there's inertia in a lot of small firms is that as you said, they don't have some of those fundamental structures and documents in place around shared mission values culture, around metrics and KPIs, things like that, which makes it really hard for the firm to be coordinated in knowing which decisions to make for the future. And the scorecard absolutely can help outline what some of those are. I think the other issue is related, and it's one of the things you and Natalie will talk about, is this kind of concept of inertia and that I can't tell you the number of conferences I've been to where I get a hundred great ideas and I know they're for sure the thing I need to do next. And then I get home and get sucked into the day-to-day work and those grand ideas fall to the wayside. And so there's the second idea that even if you take the scorecard and we help you figure out what you need to do next, there is also this kind of change management behavioral change component to it, 
which is you need to get your firm to then do the things. And whether you want our help through our Lawyerist Lab program, or you just want to call your partners together to talk about how are we going to get document one in the scorecard created for our firm, it's not just knowing what needs to be done, but then taking the step to start implementing things. You know, I, and I don't think anybody is really under any illusions about this, but I like the concept of the flywheel. We've started talking about it. Clio talked a lot about it when I went to visit them to learn about their new release that they were telling everyone about last year, late last year. And the idea is, you know, we, we tend to think about change as, okay, starting now, I'm doing things different. I've turned over a new leaf. I've made a New Year's resolution. And the reason why that never works is that change is incremental. It takes a while to get that flywheel spinning. And what usually happens is you go to the gym once or twice or three times and you don't see results because the flywheel takes some time to build up the momentum and the inertia to keep it spinning. And so then the hard work comes and then, you know, six weeks later or eight weeks later, you're buff as hell and you look awesome in, in your swimsuit or whatever your goals were. You can lift a ton of weight, whatever it is. And working on your practice is much the same way, but you need to know what are the things that will push on the flywheel. It's different than going to a gym. And you just kind of need to get started and then push away at it. And eventually inertia will take over. So that's all I got to say about that. We've got a brief conversation with Greg Garman from Law Clerk. And then we'll jump into my conversation with Natalie. I'm Greg Garman. I'm one of the co-founders of Law Clerk. And I was a practicing lawyer for more than 20 years before we created Law Clerk. Thanks for being with us, Greg. And Law Clerk is an outsourcing service. Despite the name, you outsource, you help connect lawyers with other lawyers, right? Yeah. So we're a business-to-business -business marketplace in which we help attorneys find freelance lawyers to help them with their practices. So I imagine uh, when lawyers aren't familiar with outsourcing and they're new to it, one of the first things we all do as lawyers when we're confronted with anything new is we start dreaming up ethics problems with it and why we can't do it. So I, I wonder maybe you could go into some of the objections, maybe the top one one or two or three objections that you typically hear, or at least that things that people are curious about, and maybe tell us how you think about those things. Yeah. So, you know, we're lawyers, we're a profession, we're, we're self-governed, and, and we're protective not only of our clients, but of our businesses. And we hear often um, lawyers who want to make sure that they're ethically compliant, um, as it's the cornerstone of, of our profession. Uh, and the starting place is the ethical rules. And so the ethics of outsourcing to freelance lawyers are very well established. Every state has adopted some form of the model rules, uh, and the model rules permit you to, under the appropriate supervision, with the appropriate disclosures, and ensuring that you always maintain competency in the services you're providing to the client, to outsource to the appropriate lawyer any work that you bring in through the door. And so if you think about it, when a seasoned lawyer gets a file through the door, they often walk down the hall to either a young lawyer or a paralegal. And at the end of the day, it's the lawyer who maintains the relationship with the client who's ethically on the hook and ensuring that they do the best work that they can. But we, even within our own offices, almost always have somebody else involved in, in every client matter or every file that we touch. So it's a way to ex sort of expand your ability to take cases or expand your practice, I guess. How about when it comes to billing for that? I know that I hear people wonder, you know, can I mark up fees? What can I charge? That kind of stuff. Yeah. So... The standard for a fee is it has to be reasonable, and that's that's well established. But both the U.S. Supreme Court as well as the commentary that come out of the model rules and each state's ethical rules permit there to be a markup. Professional services, whether they be of a paralegal nature or of a, a lawyer, 
are expressly permitted to be marked up in a reasonable amount so that the attorney can have a successful business. And so the ethics of freelancing are exactly the same. It has to be reasonable, um, given the light of the project, the same way that all fees are. But at the end of the day, the U.S. Supreme Court, as well as the ethical rules, say that outsourcing to freelance lawyers fall on the fee side of the column as opposed to the cost side of the column. And so we're all familiar with the rules that say you can't mark up costs. All the authority comes down the right proposition at the end of the day, marking up freelance lawyers and a reasonable amount on the fee side is permitted. And candidly, it, it meets the policy perspective, which is nobody asks if you are a an attorney and you have an associate how much you pay that associate as a base salary as compared to their hourly rate. And provided that it's reasonable, um, it is not only appropriate, but candidly, it can be a better business model for particularly solo and small firms. Now, you've put together a white paper walking through all of the ethics issues that you commonly see. And if our listeners are interested in exploring that further so that they can break down that what sometimes is the barrier to outsourcing, uh, you can find that white paper at lawclerk.legal slash lawyerist. That's lawclerk.legal, not .com lawclerk.legal slash lawyerist. Thanks so much, Craig. Thank you. Hi, I'm Natalie Kelly. I'm the director of the State Bar of Georgia's Law Practice Management Program. Uh, it's a program put forth by the State Bar of Georgia to help members with the business side of their law practice. Hi, Natalie. Thanks so much for being with us. Glad to be here. So I believe you are sometimes referred to as a PMA, right? That's correct. <laughs> um, we're referred to as a PMA, and it's not a bad word. It's a practice management advisor. And this group of individuals are usually folks who are hired by their state bar association or law society, as it were, to actually help its members through usually a, a member benefit program, uh, again, for assistance with law office management concerns. How does that work? Do people call you up? Do they make appointments and bring you their problems? What does it look like? It looks like all of that, actually, Sam. It, it's both a service that can be offered via phone only. There are some models that include just online support for members who log in to a particular resource area. So the access to the program or the services of these programs, uh, they vary based upon which bar association or law society might be putting forth the program. Um, in my case, it happens to be via telephone, via email, via appointments. We do on-site consulting. So there's a little bit of give and take between me and my membership, and there are other uh, entities that, that provide it in, in various ways as well. So kind of all over the board when it comes to, to how do you access these types of services. Now, I'd imagine most of the people who come to you are solos and small firms, right? Because big firms, I assume, would have their own person advising them on this stuff. That tends to be the case the majority of the time. There are, however, pockets of, of times where you may have a larger firm engage with our program uh, for a various number of reasons. Typically, uh, in-house CLE programs that might cover particular topics. We also do consulting sometimes on like kind of breaking apart compensation plans hmm. in larger firms. So that pops up as well. I mean, that's helpful. You know, I, I don't think we call whoever serves in that capacity at the Minnesota State Bar, I don't think we call them a PMA. So the first I was exposed to that term was at ABA Tech Show. And so I tend to think of PMAs as tech oriented, but it sounds like it's more just law practice management 
writ broadly. That's exactly right. And I think that there is, because again, kind of the gathering place for a lot of the PMAs happens to be ABA Tech Show. Mm-hmm. Um, and we love that that environment and, and because of the solutions that we were exposed to. I think that a lot of people may have that misconception that we're, we're all techies. And that's definitely far from the case. It is a very, very broad job that encompasses a lot of the other skills of a lawyer and not just the technology side. Hmm. Although, let's be real, there's a technology component in a lot of the things that everybody does these days. So it comes oh, into play. <laughs> Absol- absolutely. It's, it's huge, in fact. So one of the things that, that I think is interesting about a PMA is you are sort of the uh, the clearinghouse for the challenges that lawyers face because lawyers bring you their problems. I mean, you know, probably not related to a particular case, but anything to do with running their business, I imagine they come running to you and you have a line of lawyers telling you what challenges they face, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's one of the wonderful things about being in this particular department. Um, in my jurisdiction, you know, I kind of get to be the, the problem solver or the person at the state bar that helps you and not is out to get you in some way. <laughs> and so that that's always Everybody fun. else is out to get you, noted. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> There have been a variety of surveys on what challenges lawyers face. Uh, you and I were just looking over a recent one that Bob Ambrogi highlighted. I think it was done by Thompson. Honestly, there's a bunch. We've done our own internal surveys of our community, and they, they usually the same three or four things come up to the top. Client acquisition is almost always the number one problem lawyers say they have, at least in small firms. Time spent on administrative tasks especially gets up towards the top for very small firms, solos and very smalls. Um, getting paid is a challenge, which makes my head spin a little bit. <laughs> and um, and more recently, I don't I don't think I don't know if this has always been on the chart, but it certainly has been since oh about 2008 when the economy shifted a yeah. lot. Downward pressure on fees. Those are kind of the yeah. four that seem to circle around the top. Does that match up with what people actually come into your office for help with? You know, it's really interesting. Um, I, I'm a, a little unique as a PMA in the services that I provide. I'm probably one of the only one in the country who actually does a lot. Other than, I would say, Arizona. I'm here in Georgia. But um, we we do a lot of on-site. So I've done over 1,200 engagements, meaning where I've gone into solo and small firms and looked at uh, their practices. And oh, one that of must the, be interesting. Oh, yeah. It, it's quite interesting. But, it, but it's interesting. <laughs> Smack your forehead a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a good bit of that, but I'm why are you doing it that way? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's there's some of that, but but interestingly enough, what I found is it kind of matches up pretty well with what, what we're seeing in terms of the challenges that are listed. Um, it matches up pretty well with that. I think again, the challenges that solo and small firms have are, are interesting based on where they're situated. Often, in my state, where we have a huge metro area, a lot of rural areas as well, then you kind of take the way those, you know, you have to weigh those concerns as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's interesting. You may have a different type of consumer in certain areas and the number of lawyers, the whole access to justice um, concern, all of that is kind of a part of this. It's like a, a big, huge bowl of soup with all these different things floating around in it. Um, but I think you're, the, what rises to the top are these concerns. I mean, client acquisition, I get, like marketing is not something that comes naturally to a lot of lawyers administrative time I get um, we just you always have to spend more time doing admin than you want to mm-hmm. um, downward pressure on fees is a is a market force I get that 
It's the getting paid thing that I have trouble understanding because like that's one of two things, right? You either you're bad at billing, meaning you mm-hmm. don't send out bills or that's you don't right. follow up to get them paid or you're afraid to ask for the money in the first place, I guess. I don't I don't like what does that what does that look like? Tell me more about how lawyers are having trouble with this. Yeah. So so I think it's a again, a kind of a, a broad swap. But it's it's that it's that conversation up front. Um, it's not being clear on what uh, what the model should be for the firm. It's not, you know, analyzing the proper way to go about collections if it becomes a problem or an issue in the first place. I've gone into a lot of firms where particularly solo and small firms, where as long as the money's in the bank and, you know, if we have staff and they're being paid, um, then, oh, well, we, we're OK. Um, until they're not. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Until they're not. And there's also that, well, we don't you know, I, I, I don't have to worry about this until until there's that issue. And as long as we're doing we seem to be doing fine and we did as well as we did maybe last year, we're okay. And so that forecasting, that looking for, that budgeting, uh, a lot of times I'm not seeing that. And in fact, looking at accounts receivable is often unheard of in, in, in a lot of solo and small firms, which is just, that would be astonishing, right? Probably. So like my one of my very first clients was, uh, my boss at the time was like, I can't keep you on full time. Uh, you can stay in the office for a while as you get your own feet under you and start your own firm. And here's here's a client. And it was like, a, you know, I think it was a, an order for protection and they were trying to either get one or defend against one. I can't even remember. And I worked my mm-hmm. ass off for that. I was only going to charge them like 375 or something. They paid me the first 175 or something like that or 150. And they cut me another check, told me to wait a couple of days before I cashed it. And they happened to have the same bank. So I went to the bank and I said, if I deposit this, is it going to bounce? And they're like, yeah. And I kept that check. And every week I walked in there and I said, if I deposit this, is it going to bounce? And then finally, like two and a half years later, wow. they told me that the account had closed. And so I had to give up. But the thing is, I kept that check in my checkbook because I never, I never took a, a promise of payment again. You pay me up front or I don't take your case. And the other side of that was I decided I never wanted to try and, you know, hire a debt collector to go after clients. And so I would say that to clients in my office. I'm like, look, I'm going to take what I get paid up front because I'm never going to send a debt collector after you. But the flip side of that is you have to pay me because I'm not also not going to work without being paid. And so I never had this problem of getting paid. Um, but in fairness, I also didn't do a whole lot of hourly billing. So I don't know. But yeah, I, well, I think that that's I mean, there, there, there's some of that as well. But again, I think what happens is the lesson to be learned um, that you've kind of got to eat your mistake um, sometimes doesn't happen because they're not billing. They're not doing certain things right away. And so mm-hmm. the mistake doesn't show its head uh, until some time later. I really try to focus in my collections, you know, fee collection, CLE programs, you know, I really try to focus on that initial conversation that you're looking behind the scenes to make sure that you've got the process and the procedures down, but that you also really, really focus on that engagement from the beginning, that you're educating that client so that they know what to expect, what your bill looks like, you know, all of those things, and that you're doing things like getting a retainer in, a, in an amount that you would need to get through a certain amount of work, that it's okay to work through the case and then give the money, the client, the refund at the end, you know, that's a good thing you know, um, getting that money up front. And so we try to focus on those types of things as solutions. And I think practice management advisors, a lot of us kind of 
You know, we really, you know, focus on client relations and the, and the, you know, the relationship between the lawyer and the client, um, what that conversation looks like, what the procedures behind, uh, behind all of what you're doing from the business side is, is where our focus really happens to be. I feel like uh, part of this may be too, that lawyers are, some lawyers are inclined to take cases that maybe they shouldn't. And they're just afraid to say no, because here's somebody saying, oh yeah, I'm going to pay you $3,000, which sounds like you're going to get paid, but then they don't. And I feel like too many lawyers just are afraid to say no. Yeah, I think you get a good bit of that too. I mean, again, uh, you know, the economy has has done a lot to, you talk about the, the pressures rate from clients, mm-hmm. but but I mean, you, you know, that's forced a lot of people into just kind of accepting things that walk through the door because you, it feeds into that, hey, we have a trouble getting new clients. So why would I even let one go? Yeah. Um, and so that that's an unfortunate set of situations. So again, the conversation we're pushing lawyers towards is really defining who you are and what you do um, and doing that early on so that you're not, you know, even though you've got to tough it out maybe at the beginning, you're doing those things that you're qualified to do, that you're not just accepting anything that walks through the door. It's an important conversation. You know, that same, that same lawyer who sent me the deadbeat client is a great guy, um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, he actually is. But one of the other things he pointed, he did criminal defense law. And one of the other things he pointed out to me is like, you can quote whatever fee you want to your client, but the only money you're going to get paid is the check they write you on the day they hire you. That's true. You're just, they're not, you know, 99 times out of 100, they're not going to come back and give you that second payment they promised you. And and if you're doing something like criminal defense where you can't get out of it, there's you have no leverage. So Yeah. I mean, it, it's, a, it's an exercise in team building is, is how I look <laughs> at the legal representation process. You really, really need to to get them on the team and make them, a, you know, a player. I'm going to assist you. I'm going to, you know, we're, we're in this together. And so you, you know, the ball is now in your hand for you to, to make that shot, yeah, you know, and like so. That. Yeah, you, they've got to do that. So uh, maybe these lawyers should be spending a little more administrative time on their uh, on their billing. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I when I so when I look at this list, client acquisition, admin time, getting paid, downward pressure on fees, I can't help but seeing a technological component to all of those things. And when I look at the surveys, another very prominent thing is that lawyers are feel like one of their major challenges is staying on top of technology, uh, which seems like a big related problem. So I want to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to try and address that angle. We'll be right back. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com slash lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars, LawPay. The legal environment is more competitive than ever, and small law firms are feeling the pinch. With over 1.3 million attorneys in the United States and counting, it can be hard to stand out from the crowd. That's why Spotlight Branding helps lawyers become unforgettable. Spotlight Branding is a different kind of internet marketing company. They don't put their clients on the SEO hamster wheel. They don't ask them to burn thousands of dollars on speculative pay-per-click advertising. Instead, they're focused on the fundamentals of legal marketing that have worked for centuries. They use the internet to build a premium brand for solo and small firm lawyers. They put systems in place to create top-of-mind awareness, allowing their clients to maximize referrals and repeat business. It's the smart way to grow your law firm. Learn more at spotlightbranding.com lawyerist. 
If you've ever considered doing estate planning but think it's too dry and boring, or have been afraid it might not earn you what you need because you have to compete against LegalZoom or the dreaded $1,500 estate plans, check out the website estateplanningrules.com to get a free guide that lays out step-by-step how some lawyers are regularly commanding average fees of four dollars to $5,000 per estate plan, and you'll discover why regular, everyday people are happy to pay well for estate planning services that you'll love to provide. That's estateplanningrules.com, brought to you by New Law Business Model, where you get to love being a lawyer again. Okay, we're back. So, Natalie, uh, we left off saying that uh, it seems like technology might hold some solutions to some of those challenges that lawyers face, and yet lawyers don't feel competent to use technology to address those problems. How do we come at that? Ah, wow. I mean, it's 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 a big one. And, and you know, when I chaired ABA Tech Show, I was so proud of the fact that we'd kind of gotten there to the pinnacle or to the top of that mountain to say, I get to wave this flag that I've been waving for for so long in my in, in Georgia, which is you've got to really, really pay attention to use technology as a tool to help you. Um, and, you know, the there are the practice management world of law office management systems is is huge. It's vast. It's hard to get your head around sometimes. Um, but you've got to it's, it's like, you know, you've got to get in there. And I have been for over 20 plus years. That's why I was certified on when the first one of the first jobs I had here, and I've been here now 23 years, I think it is, um, is is to actually go in and, and learn all of this stuff so that I can help wade through some of these solutions and you know these options for lawyers. And it really, really is a very, very, I've been astounded that only 20 to 30 percent of the lawyers adopt it. And there are a lot of different reasons. It's it's not not understanding, not pulling the trigger, not doing something. And so it's the work is still here. I, I'm still fighting the same fight. I think one of the obstacles, and this is something that I've been thinking about a bit recently, is that, you know, lawyers are trained to be skeptics, right? We don't believe experts. That's mm-hmm. that's our thing. In fact, we tear them apart yeah. every chance we get. Um, and so it's exhausting every time I go to a conference to speak about building systems and project management discipline and, and technology and, and treating your firm like a business. There's always this pushback, you know, which is prove it. Prove it to me that I should care about these things. You know, prove it to me that I need to use a VPN. Prove it to me that uh-huh. uh, I should be using practice management software. And oh, man. it's it's exa- It's like you have to have a uh, you have to get cross examined by every single lawyer you see. It feels like sometimes. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I used to do the practice management. I, I stole this from someone I forget who. I don't. Ross Codner. I used to do the. He's a, a former famous uh, legal technology consultant from back in the day. And um, when he was alive, he and I used to do the CLE together. Maybe I stole it from him. But I used to put a dollar up on the on the on the podium and you know dare anyone in the audience of the big large CLE audience uh, to to take the dollar if they didn't feel a practice management software solution would work for their office. And I'd basically outline all of these things that we've been talking about, all of these things, how it impacts uh, or brings to bear a solution to all of these things that we've been talking about, getting new clients, tracking market referrals, managing, uh, you know, tracking time, invoicing, all of those things, um, you know, that can be be solved with with at least in my mind, a practice management you know, solution is just right at the forefront of helping on a, in a very basic way, but then also very, very impactful to get to that next level with those systems is just, you know, I think it's life changing for firms. Um, and for those who don't adopt, 
like you say, for that 70, 50, 60, 70 percent, it's interesting why they don't, particularly when you get to, to firms of size. And the way that I've looked at it in, in, in years past, I've monitored whether solo small firms would adopt versus what we call maybe a mid-sized firm, 10 to, to 15, 20 lawyers. You know, so size matters too So in, in this conversation. And um, when you get up into, you know, the 10 plus lawyer, 10 plus lawyers in a, in a space, they're doing different things. Mm-hmm. So all of them are kind of vying for these specialized tools for their practice group or their practice area. So overall, sometimes the firm won't just jump in, you know, to buy a, a particular solution or buy into practice management software. And I think that's eased up a little bit when we've got cloud solutions coming to bear. So well, that's, you know, I lose interest after about 15 lawyers. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. you know, when I think about small firms, I think I've been a little unfair to say, you know, some lawyers are, are just obstinate, but, um, but others know that they need to adopt things and uh, and just can't seem to get over the hump of prioritizing it, figure out which one is right for them. And then more importantly, actually implementing it, getting training if they need it, learning how to use it and get the most out of it. That is the same hump that runs across all business systems, right? Like, yeah. oh, I know I should be tracking my intake, but I, yeah. I just, you know, I, <laughs> I'm too busy answering the phone or, or I know I should go to the gym. Mm-hmm. I got a membership mm-hmm. even, mm-hmm. but I can't get myself to, to get started. It's that like because you've had been into so many firms and lawyers lives um, who are trying to get started, I'm wondering what what seems to work best to actually get people to get started? So that's that's a great question, because um, part of the service that we provide anyway, that I've been doing a good chunk of the going on site has been to actually help firms implement. And usually what I'm looking for is a champion within the firm. I go in asking, what's your headache? We're, we're, you know, it's okay. We can't find, you know, we, we, we lose a lot of files in here. We don't know where certain things are, or we're bumping heads in terms of, of procedures or workflow. So I go into firms looking for what's the problem um, where they may, you know, in fact, I even have a, a questionnaire that goes out to them beforehand that'll ask them what they think their problems are. And then I go in and we actually see. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in response to that, how we kind of get them to, to implement is to actually say, these are the problems problems you have. Here are the two products, two or three products that are out there that can solve it. And this is how they solve it. And once you've done that and kind of shown them, kind of show your work on the board for them, um, they're a bit more apt to, to adopt. And so, you know, we, we've had the honor of, of helping a lot of firms in, in, you know, with the implementation phase of getting there. We kind of train the trainer, so to speak, of whoever our champion within a particular firm would be on, on a lot of the practice management systems and say, here are the top three or four. You pick one, they come in, they even get to come in and sit down and, and make that decision with us. And a lot of the practice managed advisors do that. They offer the ability for their members to, to kind of weed through uh, some of the products and look at them and take demos and, you know, ask certain questions, kind of an unbiased, uh, you know, approach to that. Um, and then we get to go in, we, we, we have a privilege to go in and actually help them implement by showing them hands-on, this is what it can do. And this is what these types of services can can do for them. So that's where we, we go a little bit further. I'm, I'm wondering a bit about uh, the role that buy-in plays, because I know, so like there's a famous letter that Jeff Bezos wrote to Amazon where he talked about disagree and commit. As the concept of like, I, you know, you get your board together, the decision makers together, you, you lay an issue out, um, and there's disagreement at the end. And, you know, half the room says, you know, 
half of the room is for an, uh, a thing, whether it's practice management software or a new marketing plan, and the other half of the room or, or a third of the room is like, no, I disagree with that. And, and at Amazon, and, and this is the way we run our company, is disagree and commit. I disagree with you, but I'm going to work my ass off to try and accomplish this goal in the way that you have advocated for because you won and I want this company to succeed and so I'm going with it. I sometimes feel like at law firms, disagree and screw you is more of the strategy where it's <laughs> yeah. like, that's fine. Um, have your have your paperless office over there, but I'm going to continue with my filing cabinets over here. Or um, it's great that you want to use a new timekeeping system. I don't want to, so I'm just not going to. I'm going to keep <laughs> doing it on paper. And that feels really toxic to me. And I think part of the answer is if you can't disagree and commit, then you need to disagree and leave. And firms just aren't willing to show someone the door when they're bringing in business or when they're being, you know, when they're serving clients and being productive. And I, I, I acknowledge that that is mm -hmm. a tough problem um, that requires a real decision. But I'm, I'm wondering if you have some insight into like how firms change their attitude about de that decision making process so that disagree and commit becomes the everyone bought into rather than, you know, just a bunch of different people doing their own different things. Yeah, I, th I think you're, it, it's very interesting that you bring that up because I think what happens is in, in, in our consultation process kind of involves everyone at the table. And it's really important that buy-in because what you're doing is you're meeting people where they are in terms of where they are with their disagreement. Mm -hmm. So if they have a headache, what's your headache? If it was all it was all okay, we wouldn't be here. What's your problem? Well, my problem is I need you to get out of the way so I can make rain. Okay, well, fine. Um, but this is the way that these systems are going to help everybody else support you in that process. Well, and um, if you and make so rain, what? Are, how are you going to serve those clients? Right. Right. I mean. Exactly. So you're so you're you're basically giving them some definition, even further definition to their disagreement, and you're you're actually allowing them to to find their path to this commitment because. Uh, this is going to help them and you're showing them how they're going to do it. Hmm. Okay. So I don't, don't, I don't like the fact that you guys are putting in this time and billing system, but this is what it means for you in the end. So sometimes they're not given, I, I don't think oftentimes maybe the, the, the entire picture. So you've got to play the tape all the way to the end, like you say, to say, this is going to benefit everyone. And even if you have some, and there's some stagnant situations where people are, are very, uh, you know, obstinate about, they, they dig in, you know, I'm, I don't like this. I don't want this. I don't want to be a part of this. And usually, that even leads to, and what I've found over the years, it probably leads to even some deeper problems that are there. And you, some years later, you'll find out that that person's moved on. Yeah. One of the things that this just occurred to me as we were talking, you know, older software, like when I started my solo practice, um, I, I bought Time Matters. And it turns out that Time Matters is useless unless you pay a consultant thousands of dollars to help you set it up, <laughs> which was just at the beginning of some of my problems with that software. But I, in some ways, I think that that structure made it much more essential for you. I mean, it made it obvious that in order to make use of this thing, to make any real use of it, you needed to invest some time and money in configuration and training. Whereas, <laughs> you know, on the, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, let's say Clio, which was one of the really prominent uh, alternatives that popped up after a few years in my practice, Mm -hmm. It is it is deceptively simple, right? It's got a it's right. got a friendly user interface that makes it look like anyone should be able to just sit down and use it. <laughs> when in <Nah>. truth, um, <laughs> I mean that that is true for some people. Like I am a, I'm the kid who took apart all my toys, right? Like I like to dig into things and play with them and figure them out. 
when it comes to showing other people at my firm or in, on my team how to use things, it, that is not the same way that everybody approaches stuff. And so um, I have to stop and train or I have to show and, mm -hmm. and document. And I feel like the deceptive simplicity of a lot of the software that is out there right now mm -hmm. uh, might be might be hurting buy-in because people aren't including training in their onboarding or their software, hardware, technology implementation plans. You know, that's it's a very, very interesting thing. So I have been in the practice management software world, both on-premise, old system, time matters. I was grandfathered in as a time matters consultant years mm -hmm. and years and years ago. And so um, from the very beginning when it was even based in, in Miami. And so, um, for, so from its infancy, all the way to even seeing all of the cloud systems being born and where they are. And you're absolutely right. They are deceptively simple. And right. what's happened even over the years, I was one of those consultants that trained people on Time Matters. And in knowing what the power of it, but then also implementing it where it was only used as a glorified calendar or Rolodex, right. I most saw people, over was, and over again. It was the most popular yeah. practice management software and nobody actually used it. They just right. <laughs> they well, used it to keep track of their contacts and a list of their uh, of their matters and, and basically it was an Outlook replacement. Yeah, it's it's the Swiss <laughs> Army knife, right? You've, yeah. you've got the, you're, you're only going to use the can opener so many times, right? Yeah. You're only going to use the screwdriver on there so many times. And that's the, that's the issue with with um with with practice management so it really and truly is like a swiss army knife Although you, you're only going to use some pieces to it credit to time matters uh i when i was learning how to use it i stumbled across a white paper uh that i can no longer find but that i swear was I all about in, it was all about <laughs> inbox zero before merlin man ever used that term um, they, they were discussing how to properly use um, email for filing in Time Matters, and it described Inbox Zero to a T. And so I learned Inbox Zero from a Time Matters white paper, and I want yep. them to have credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, nothing new under the sun. I'm sure we could have this conversation going all day and yeah. dig around in here and find some stuff that would say, hey, I said that back in that CLE many, many years ago. <laughs> Well, and let me let me try and tidy this up a little bit. So we've talked about some of the biggest challenges lawyers face, some of the possibilities for technology adoption. If a firm is listening to this podcast and this is totally resonating with them um, and yeah, those are my problems, what should they do? I mean, I, maybe one of the answers yeah. is go see your, your local PMA, but that's not an option in every state or it's not yeah. a good option in every state. It's like, what should a firm do to take the first step towards solving some of those biggest challenges that they face? So, so this is, well, number one, I will say, if you do have a PMA, by all means, all means reach out. Because even if they are not like the techie PMA, like we happen to be, or ha have that as a part of our services, they will have access to other individuals who do um, resources and information and get you to, to someone who can do what you need to have happen. And it's our job to kind of stay on top of those things. But then secondly, I think um, it, it is important if you're, if you're, if you're finding this helpful, um, and you're saying, hey, we need to do something. We, we've got to do something. Where do I get started? Um, I think, again, looking to what you have currently as policies and procedures, what's on the written side of what you do, if it's right, if it's down somewhere, how do you do things? That needs to be a place where you can just slowly start to, to march towards more efficiency in what you're doing, um, whether it's coming to some technology solution decisions that you need to make, whether it's how we approach our client relationships and, and our engagement um, for with potential clients 
clients. It's it's analyzing everything that you do in in in, in your practice, um, and and doing it from the standpoint of what are my policies and proceed. How am I doing it right now? Mm-hmm. Um, and and getting that down, and then approaching it from there. Um, and and it's easier to kind of attack it, I think, with the policies and procedures manual. If you don't have one, then that's where you start. You're you're going to start with building one. Um, you're going to write down this is how we've done it, or these are the different ways that everybody in this office is doing it, but it's five different ways, okay? Then we can come together and, and make a, 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 this is the firm way of getting it done. I mean, yeah, we, I totally just had that conversation with Lori Gonzalez um, a few podcasts ago. It's before you start adopting technology, right, you have to understand how you do things. And if how you do things is seven different ways, you kind of need to get everybody on the same process and then fit that into um, some technology. And technology can't come first. Well, I, I I don't think it comes first at all. In fact, like I said, it's the, it's a, it's how you how are we going to use this Swiss Army knife? You're making that kind of decision mm-hmm. at that. And so it's important for, you know, I use the hammer thing all the time. I've got all these different analogies and you'll be confused by the time this is over. But, um, you know, it's the it's the hammer. You know, how do you want to get the nail in the wall? You The head, the claw, the, or, the, or the handle. And you've got to make you want to try to get it head on as you can. I, OK, I will say, though, that this is something I see, too, where lawyers do have a really defined idea of here is how we do things. And Clio sucks or, you know, Rocket Matter sucks or my case sucks because they don't do things the way I want them to. And the software is terrible, um, which a there's a problem with just that that view of the world that yes, I, yes. I do it in the correct way. But like there I, I feel like there's a push and pull, especially with the less configurable software that we have today. Each piece of software, case peer, Clio, my case, whatever, um, Locus, they all want to be used in a certain way. And there, there's yep. some flexibility in that, but, but the software actually has an opinion about how it ought to be used. And I feel like you, even if you have a really defined process, or even if you think you do, you're, you're going to have to bend and adapt and, and kind of meet the software where it is, where it I is. think. Yeah. And, and that's hard. Yeah. Yeah, it can be. It can really, really be, which is why I think that weighs into sometimes people switching midstream from one system to another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, back in the day, um, uh, there were some solutions that were totally wide open. And if you're more of a programmer type for customization, this was the, you know, it was, it was the holy grail for you. Um, right. Where on the other end, you were not organized at all and you needed more, you know, structure in your database system and you needed to, to for them to have built it for you. Um, and so you kind of have to really, really know yourself, know how you do things, understand the limitations um, that, that you've described, that it can't necessarily be all things to everybody um, and and what that means for you. So, uh, you know, leveraging it to, to answer the, the solution, I think, for it to be the solution, you really, really have to, to further define what the issues are. Well, and I guess I, I would also observe that I think it's going to take a while to figure out how your systems work in tandem with your technology, and that's okay. We meet every Monday afternoon to update our procedures manuals at Lawyerist. And some of those procedures manuals get to the point where they're basically done. It goes very smoothly, and we work on it. This podcast has a really robust procedures manual that is pretty well done, and we just churn it out every week. 
Um, but even so, we come back to it periodically and we make sure it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's a discipline that is really helpful is actually making sure that you're paying attention to these things. And it can take one, two, three years to really nail down, here's the way we do it. And then, you know, there's a software update and you have to update your systems again. But, but I mean, it's okay for it to take these a while. These things are ongoing processes and this is part of how you serve your clients. So you just have to kind of be okay with it, I think. Absolutely. I mean, we take on a you know an opioid litigation associate. Now that changes the whole landscape because right. we we need another custom field or whatever the case might be. I think you have to remain flexible in understanding that the solution is is there is that it's a tool, and you 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 now need to adapt to. We've got another wall that we need to address in this house, and so that's going to be something that that you're right. You you need to be flexible, and I think firms who who remain nimble throughout the process, but also dedicated to that coming to the table every Monday to look at the procedures are looking at things and not um, saying we got to have this done and it's going to be 100 percent, you know, year end. You know, that's where you need to be. You need to, to understand that this is a process. It's not something that that is is 100 percent and done always. Yeah, it's, it's working on your your firm as a business rather than just working. Exactly. So, Natalie, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I, I think it's been really interesting to talk through these things with you, and I'm, I'm glad we finally got you on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Sam. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. 